Good morning, everyone. How are you? Good, good. Yes, uh, my name is Brian, and uh, I'm one of your global missions partners. So, yes, 10 years total on the mission field. The past eight years, we've been living in uh, the capital city of Uganda called Kampala. And uh, just a couple things to share about that. We were working under the leadership of Ugandans there, working uh, for a group of Ugandans who had started a ministry that was a mission-sending agency. So these are Ugandans who formed an agency to send Ugandan and Kenyan missionaries so that people could hear the gospel. And so we worked under their leadership. They were the ones in charge. They, they started this initiative and they were the leaders of it. But it was just such an honor to work alongside them and with them as we saw Uganda transitioning really from being a mission field to also being a mission force. And, and let me tell you, it will be a force. Um, yeah, amazing. So we're just an honor to be a part of that. Um, at the end of this month, we'll be wrapping up this one-year home assignment that we've been uh, on here. And I've been a student at our very own Baptist General Conference of Canada Seminary called Canadian Baptist Seminary. And I'm just wrapping that up. And so what's coming next is I'll be working still with Africa Inland Mission and Baptist General Conference of Canada, but in a new role. And so I'll be working with a multi-organizational uh, innovation team. What that means is that I'll be um, developing new mission projects and working with organizations all around the world. And that's going to mean some travel here and there and everywhere. So we decided that it would make a lot of sense to make our home base right here in Edmonton. So you'll be seeing us around. So thank you as a church for all the support you've given us uh, as your global mission partners. So today, uh, as Pastor Dave said, we're going to be looking at Noah and the Great Flood, the account of Noah and the Great Flood. And this is a, a familiar, a, a popular story. It might, be, it might be the best known Bible story. And so as I was thinking about preaching, I thought, well, what, what do we do with that? What, we, what do we do when we're looking at a story that's, um, it, it's, it's been heard so many times? How do we still keep it fresh? How do we still learn something from it? Well, one thing that we can do is put it carefully into its original context. I mean, after all, this is not a, a random Bible story. It, it's placed in a specific context within the book of Genesis and in a specific context in, in God's relationship with humankind. And so by thinking about it within that context, we can draw out important meaning. And, and furthermore, we can really be actually inspired. We can be inspired by what this story has to show us. So I do want to give this some context. So in light of this, putting it, the, this flood narrative in its context, uh, I want to back up just for a minute and, and briefly recap some of what we've talked about over the last few weeks in this series on Genesis. Um, and I would begin by just saying, first of all, that, that I love that we are having a sermon series on the first 11 chapters of Genesis. This is, is such, it's such an important part of scripture. Theologically, regardless of, of how we discern, discern the, the different ways of looking at what genre a passage might be, um, as Pastor Dave mentioned as he was preaching on Genesis chapter 1, there is discussion, there's varying opinions on, uh, even among evangelical Christians, on the genre or the type of literature that the various passages are. 
But I think one important thing to note is that, you know, regardless of what genre you recognize or understand it to be, evangelical scholars all uphold, they all uphold the theological truth communicated in Genesis. There is no one who's taking this out of their Bible. So I'm just so happy that we're spending some time in it. And so in this sermon series, the focus is on God. And we're looking at what God wants to teach us through these first 11 chapters of Genesis. So to provide, uh, you know, the account of Noah and the great flood with proper context, we need to consider what we've seen so far in the first few chapters of Genesis. But we also need to see the flood account in the overarching paradigm of Scripture. Now, what is it that I mean when I say the overarching paradigm of Scripture? Well, what I'm talking about is creation, fall, redemption, new creation. So this is the, the overall big picture paradigm of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. So really from, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, this is the overarching paradigm that we see. Genesis informs us about the creation of the world and all that's in it, including us as human beings. And sadly, we also see the fall. Uh, the fall into sin, into evil, wickedness. And then, of course, in the Gospels and in the New Testament, we see Jesus give up his life on the cross to pay for our sins. And that's the ultimate act of redemption. And then finally, at the end of the book of Revelation, we see new creation, a renewal of the heavens and the earth in Revelation chapter 22. And God makes everything new. And so that, there it is, the creation, fall, redemption, new creation, but it doesn't just happen sort of one time as the overarching paradigm for scripture, for scripture, but you see that same theme repeat over and over again on a smaller scale throughout scripture. So these themes, this paradigm is echoed throughout scripture again and again, and we'll see some of that this morning. So again, back to the, the recap of Genesis so far. A few weeks ago in Genesis chapter 1, Pastor Dave was our preacher, and he talked about creation. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created. Now, the earth was without form, and it was void, but God formed it. That was day 1, 2, and 3. And God filled it, days 4, 5, and 6. So we had what was without form and void is now formed and filled. It's pretty neat. And we also learned from Genesis chapter 1 that humankind, both male and female, are made in God's image. We're made to reflect God's character in this world, and that's really our created purpose. You know, that's what we're created to do. And, and on that, there's, there's something else interesting to note. You know, those terms, image of God and likeness of God, you can hear those phrases in other ancient Near East literature. So other literature from way, way, way back in the ancient Near East. Um, but, but there's a difference. You know, you can hear it in other places outside the Bible, but in those other places you hear it, it's cultures using those terms about their king only. Cultures would say, our king is made in the image of God. He's made in the likeness of God. But isn't that an important difference about the Bible? The Bible says that all of us, all humanity, every male and female, we are made in the image of God. I feel like that's important. I feel like that's important for all of us. It's an important difference. 
And of course, sadly, you know, we get to Genesis chapter 3 and we get to the fall, the fall of humankind into sin. Uh, Pastor Joel preached a sermon about that, and, uh, and he talked about four different relationships that were affected. You know, as humanity fell into sin, the image of God that was placed within us got distorted. It wasn't taken away altogether, but it becomes distorted. And so Pastor Joel talked about four key relationships where we see that distortion, where we see that they're affected. So that's our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, our relationship with ourselves. You know, so that's our own, our own internal corruption and discontent. And also our relationship with God's creation, the world around us. And all of those things have been affected. So this is actually important context, uh, not just for my sermon today, but actually for our lives. When we look around at our world today, we should expect to see humanity reflecting the image of God. And that's what we're created for. And to some degree, we do see that. But because of the fall, we should also expect that image of God to be distorted. And we definitely see that today too in other people around us, and when we look inside ourselves, we also see that distortion. So again, remember this paradigm, creation, fall, redemption, new creation. As we continue in, in the book of Genesis, unfortunately, things get even worse. We get to chapter 4 and the story of Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother, the first murder. We get further on in that chapter, and we come to Lamech. In the last two Sundays, we've heard about Lamech. Um, if Cain went on to a wrong path, murdering his brother, well, Lamech, he just throws himself fully into a life of embracing corruption in every form. And this is how things are getting worse and worse. We also can see an intensification here. You know, if, if Lamech doesn't like what you do to him, he will do something far worse to you. So you can imagine the effect that this pattern has on the world, this, this ever-increasing vengeance. Each act of vengeance has to go one step further than the one before. You can imagine what this does to our world. So as we come to Genesis chapter 6, where we are today, we now are in a time of rampant evil. Things have gone from bad to worse. We get to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, and it reads like this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he'd made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Can you put yourself in God's shoes for a minute? Can you, can you feel a little bit what God must be feeling. Look around at what humanity is doing. They've been so corrupted that their every intention has become evil continually. And so it's at this point in Genesis, we've seen creation in the fall and we've seen the evil from the fall intensifying. And I feel like I'm starting to really long to, to yearn for some of this redemption. Remember the paradigm is creation, fall, redemption, new creation. I'm starting to really hunger for that. Where is that redemption? 
So this catches up, catches us up to our topic today, the account of Noah and the great flood. And we'll just cover the first half of the story today. But let's pause here. Let's take a little bit of a break from the ancient setting and start to talk a little bit about something um, closer to our time, something we can relate with a, a little bit. About 25 years ago, uh, a movie came out, a film called Saving Private Ryan. Have you seen that one? Yeah, it was really popular when it came out, although that was, you know, 25 years ago now. <laughs> um, but it's, it's a film about World War II. Now, World War II. This was a hard time for us here on the earth. Nobody likes war. I mean, nobody wants war to happen. But as Hitler and the Nazis came to power, and they started conquering those around them, world leaders were looking on and starting to think, we're gonna have to do something. But keep in mind, you know, world leaders watching this happen, they did not want to go to war. They had just come through World War I. World War I was supposed to be the war to end all wars. That's what it was called. You know, so world leaders were not anxious to go to war, but they saw Hitler and the Nazis and the oppression that they were bringing. You know, if ever there was a war where it seemed like it just had to happen, a war that, that couldn't be avoided because something just had to be done, it was the war against Hitler and the Nazis, World War II. So this film, Save it, Saving Private Ryan, it's, it's in that setting of World War II. And uh, there's this scene. There's this scene where a there's a scene where this military officer, he's, he's an American, he's part of the Allies, you know, the good guys, uh, fighting against the Nazis. He goes to tell his superior officer about a very sad situation. And it sounds like this. Colonel, he says, I've got something that you should know about. This man died at Omaha, at Omaha Beach, Sean Ryan. And this man at Utah, Peter Ryan. And this man was killed last week in New Guinea, Daniel Ryan. These three men are brothers, sir. And I've just learned that this afternoon their mother is going to be receiving all three telegrams about their deaths. And that's not all, sir. There's a fourth brother, the youngest and he's somewhere in Normandy. One cannot even fathom the incredible grief of that mother as she receives those three telegrams all at once that her sons have been killed. And where's the fourth son, the last son? Where is he? He's on the front lines in Normandy. Is there any hope? And so the military leaders, they make a bold and a controversial decision. They're going to try and save the fourth brother, James Ryan, Private Ryan. So eight men are sent to save the one remaining brother from the front lines. Now, as you can imagine, you know, this has to be a controversial decision. I mean, there are eight men to save this, sent to save this person. And one of those eight men, as he's leaving, he says, where's the sense? You know, where is the sense in this risking the lives, of the, the lives of the eight of us just to save this one guy? 
But then, on the other hand, one of the other, one of the, one of the eight, another one, later on in the film, he says this to his captain. He says, someday, we might look back on this and decide that saving Private Ryan was the one good and decent thing we were able to pull out of all this. And so, this is a film that doesn't offer simplistic answers to the hard questions and realities of war. There's a sense in which what they're sent to do is crazy, but there's another sense in which it is a profound and a beautiful thing to do. It is an act of unmerited grace in action. And it's on these common threads, these threads of dealing with rampant evil in the world, as well as the thread of the demonstration of unmerited grace, on those two threads that will now pivot and look at the account of Noah and the great flood. And, you know, we'll refer back uh, to Private Ryan in a few minutes. So we're moving into Genesis chapter 6, and I'm not going to read every verse. This is actually a long passage that we have of Scripture today, 6, 9 to 7, 24. Um, but I'll read some of them, and I'm going to begin in chapter 6, verse 9. And it says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark, a big boat of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. And so God went on to describe this huge boat that Noah was to build. He gave dimensions and told him how to make it. And then continuing from verse 17, God says, For behold, I will bring floodwaters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. So here we have God making a covenant with Noah, a covenant to save Noah and his family. And he tells Noah to take the animals as well, male and female of each animal, so that they can repopulate the world after the flood. So this is really a covenant to preserve and reestablish life on the face of the earth. Chapter 6 concludes with the statement, Noah did this, he did all that God commanded him. So I started off a few minutes ago talking about World War II. Now, the Great Flood account is, it's not about war, is it? But it is about dealing with evil in the world, just like World War II. But I would say that this actually is, or was, a greater, a more pervasive evil, even than Hitler and the Nazis. And yes, it is, it is quite sobering to hear about the judgment that God pronounced on the earth in the flood account. But just like the costly act of judgment against Hitler and the Nazis and the liberation of the people who were under his tyranny, you know, we soberly accept 
God's action in judging the world through the flood. And we also recognize his saving grace in saving Noah. Actually, really, he was saving all humanity, isn't it? And all the living creatures from being permanently annihilated. You know, humankind and all, man and all animal life on the land would have been permanently destroyed. And that means you and me. You know, we wouldn't be here. So... Let's continue hearing the account from Genesis 7, and uh, Selmer Hansen's going to read for us on video. I'm reading from Genesis chapter 7, verses 6 through 24. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of the waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. The rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons, with them entered into the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubics deep and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, and all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils were the breath of life, they died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground 
man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Wow. Thank you, Selmer. That was, that was beautifully read. And that's sober, isn't it, to hear? Well, let me say, uh, something I wanted to share is that, you know, the Bible is, the Bible is just great literature by, by any standard at all. There's beauty here. Um, not only was that beautifully read, but you can see that there is a beautiful structure to the account of Noah and the flood. And so you can see that up on the slide here. Um, this is not something I put together, but uh, my source is Gordon Wenham. He's someone who wrote uh, a very good commentary on the book of Genesis. And he notes as you go through the story, the structure of it, it's, it has a parallelism to it or a chiastic structure. And it's actually quite detailed. Uh, you even see there's a section there where, you know, from the point where they enter the ark until the point they leave, this parallel structure, this chiastic structure, it even has a, a greater detail. Even the numbers that are quoted in this passage are done so with this beautiful symmetry. And so I truly believe that the Bible is beautiful literature by, by any standard. Um, and this is used a fair bit in scripture, this structure. Uh, the one thing I would want to point out is that when you see this type of structure, this parallelism, it is guiding you, it is pointing you to the main theme, and you will always find that in the middle. And that's what we see in this structure. Um, now, the bad news for me, the main point, it actually comes in next week's sermon. <laughs> so I think, let me just use this as an advertisement for next week. Uh, come and see Keith Taylor, uh, and he will take you further into the meaning of this passage. <laughs> but I do want to take some time to draw out some meaning. <clears throat> and there's a variety of ways we can, can do this. I want to start by looking at this from the perspective of God. Um, <clears throat> Pardon me, let's start by looking at it from the perspective of Noah. We'll look at it from the perspective of Noah, and then we'll look at it from the perspective of God. You know, God asked Noah to build this enormous boat. Did you, did you see it in the video? I mean, it's, it's huge. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking, if I were Noah, and God came to me with that request, boy, Noah sure had to have some trust in God, didn't he? Like, that's a big ask. That's a big ask. He would really need to trust God to say yes to this one. And, you know, surely this, this act of building this ark would have, you know, would have drawn some attention. <laughs> it would have exposed him to potential ridicule. He, this was an act of... He, he sort of had to make a decision to do something crazy even before there was any evidence in the direction this was going. So if there's one thing I'm inspired by Noah about, it's his trust in God. Also, Noah is given the responsibility to care for, to preserve all of the land animals. 
And he's called to act as a steward over all living things. And this isn't incidental, it's not accidental. I mean, this is part of what humankind is called to do back in Genesis 1. So it's actually very appropriate. But Noah is called back to fulfill his role as a human being to care for all living creatures. And Noah, out of faithfulness to to God, obeys everything that God tells him to do. And that's mentioned twice in this passage, Genesis 6.22 and Genesis 7.5. God did all that the Lord had commanded him. So we've looked at the story from the perspective of Noah, so now let's look at it from the perspective of God. So what actions does God take in this passage? What does God say is his motivation for the actions he takes? Well, we read in Genesis 6, 11 to 13, God says this, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, the earth was filled with violence. And God said, determined to make an end to all flesh, for it's filled, the earth is filled with violence through them. Again, remember that, that example of World War II. Hitler and the Nazis had to be dealt with. The world leaders around them, they just come through World War I. supposed to be the war to end all wars. They're not anxious to go back to war, but they recognize it has to be done. They were not excited to go to war. I can just imagine God in the same way looking at his own beautiful creation. But he could see clearly that judgment was necessary. Something had to be done. But, but the beauty here is that he builds something in to the judgment, redemption. Remember that paradigm, creation, fall, redemption, new creation. That very redemption that we've been longing for ever since the fall in Genesis 3, he builds that redemption into the judgment. This is part of the beautiful character of God. He builds redemption into the necessary judgment. And I think it's fascinating too that this is the same thing God does in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was crucified as a punishment for the sins of all humankind. He took that judgment on himself for us. He took on the judgment. And yet, as the perfect sacrifice, he has redeemed us all forever. The redemption is built into the judgment. I think the resemblance is striking. Now, this account of Noah and the great flood, it is not God's final or ultimate solution to the problem of evil, but it does foreshadow it. Now, why would I say it's not, it's not the final or the ultimate solution? Well, that's because the image of God in humankind is still distorted. And until that is resolved, humankind will keep on generating more corruption in many forms, even to this day. Don't we see it around us? But I think that's why it's so important that we take time to know and to understand these first few chapters of the book of Genesis. It provides a lens through which we can understand the human condition. Look around at the people you interact with. Look for the image of God in them. But also look for the distortion that continues. And you can see it inside yourself too. 
But the story, and I mean the big story, is not yet over. This is why we look forward to Christ's return to finish what he has started. And we look forward to the final new creation that comes, and we see it in Revelation chapter 22. Looking at the New Testament, I want, I want to read just one verse from 1 John that draws out what's still to come. 1 John chapter 3, starting from verse 1. We see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are, made in his image. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Now, I want to ask the question, so what? What is the significance of the account of Noah and the great flood? Well, I would say it this way. This could have been a story about the day that all living creatures, creatures were permanently annihilated forever. But it's not. It's a story about the day that God made a way for living creatures to be saved. A new beginning. It's a story of redemption built into God's righteous judgment. Now, this sermon today is going to end halfway through the story, halfway through the flood narrative. But, but you know, it's not the end of the story. You know, the story continues. Um, but the fact that my sermon today ends halfway through, it kind of got me thinking. It kind of was uh, a reason to reflect on this a bit. And I started to imagine, well, what if this were the end of the story? I mean, you know, what if the flood comes, God saves them, they're in the boat, God shuts the door, there they are, they're floating. But what if that's it? I mean, what if they just keep floating? How would that be? It's strange to think about, um, but I thought it was an interesting reflection. Saved for endless floating. Uh, but, but sadly, actually, I think sometimes this is how some of us treat the Christian life. All we care about is whether or not we're saved and we're going to heaven when we die. After that, we just kind of float. Once we have our ticket to heaven, we're content to float through life. But you know, that kind of living is like living life without the purpose. It's like the purpose has been left out. I mean, remember, we're, we're made in the image of God. We're made to reflect his character in the world, to be stewards of God's creation. We can't just leave out the purpose. Back to that film, that film, Saving Private Ryan. So Private Ryan was successfully saved from the front lines of the war. But in doing that, you know, those eight men that were sent to save him, several, actually most, didn't make it back. This was an act of unmerited grace. And so, fast forward, we come to the end of the film, and at the end of the film, it's showing Private Ryan 
decades, decades later, he's now an old man. And these many decades later, in his old age, he's gone to visit the grave sites of the men who gave their lives to save him. And so he's there looking at their graves with, with tears in his eyes. He's feeling at this moment the full weight of the fact that men, several men, gave their lives just to save his. And there he is feeling the gravity of that. He's got tears in his eyes and he, he's there at the grave sites and he turns to his wife and he says to her, Tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. And his wife looks at him thoughtfully and says, you are. You know, he realized that what was done for him was unmerited grace. And so he lived a life that was marked by gratitude for that and humility and service towards others. He chose to be a good man. And isn't it the same with us? We too have been saved by the gift of God's grace through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. God gave his son to pay the price for our wickedness. Jesus died for us, and I think that's profound. And so since we have been saved in this way, what will we do with it? Will we do nothing or will we take it for granted? Well, I'm not asking any of us to move to the front lines of a war zone. I'm not asking that. And I'm not asking you to move to another continent to minister. I'm not asking you to do that. But I am suggesting that we must not take our salvation for granted. There's something that we must do or more correctly, there is something that we must be. And that is being in the image of God in this world, reflecting his character, his beautiful, his perfect character for everyone to see. Let's not give up on reflecting the image of God in this world. And then, at Christ's return, we will be made like him because we will see him as he is. Remember that overarching paradigm creation, fall, redemption, new creation. And as I wrap up here, let me just acknowledge, <laughs> sermons are hard to remember, aren't they? <laughs> they can be hard to remember. Like two weeks from now, you probably won't remember this sermon. I'm preaching this sermon, and two weeks from now, I won't remember this sermon. <laughs> Sadly, that's, that's kind of how it is. So I think there's something we have to do. We have to take a moment right now. We have to take a moment to reflect right now. I think that's our only chance. <laughs> so let's reflect right now together. Have you seen and recognized the image of God in humanity? Let's reflect together. Think about these questions. Have you recognized the image of God in humanity? Have you also recognized distortion of that perfect image in yourself and in others. This is important. Have you known God well enough to recognize the difference between his image and the distortion?
can you recognize the, the difference? Have you come to know God well enough? And then how clearly are you reflecting that image in the world? In the light of creation, fall, redemption, new creation, in the light of that paradigm, have you accepted God's redemption, his reconciliation given to you? Are you working as an ambassador of that reconciliation to others? Are you allowing his Holy Spirit to sanctify you? That's how that image of God is restored in you. If you allow the Holy Spirit to sanctify you, to make you into a new creation. Finally, are there any changes that you need to make in your life? Do you need to set maybe just a little bit different trajectory in some way? Are there decisions you need to make about your life? And I know, you know, we all face the same thing. We have to work. We have to get up, go to work. We have to put food on the table for our families. So it comes down to some of the very practical decisions we make, how we use our time, how we use our money. Are there any decisions about that that you need to make today? So let me call up the worship team and the prayer team. And let's close in prayer together. Our Father God, we love you. Thank you for who you are. And thank you for your perfect character. Thank you for saving us through your son, Jesus. Lord, let us reflect your image in this world. Lord, may your kingdom come through your son, Jesus Christ, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.